All right, good morning, everybody. How are you today? All right, man, so glad to see you today. I want to kick off today uh, showing you a really cool picture, all right? Here's this picture. Let me tell you what you're looking at. These are some children from a village in Burkina Faso in West Africa. And uh, these children have gathered around Christmas time. Uh, there are several of them in different villages. This is just one. And they are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, they will get a little uh, Christmas gift. It's a simple little gift uh, as a result. But, uh, but the reason why they're holding up their hands is because these are ones that have, have heard the gospel for the first time and asked Christ to come into their life. Now, the cool thing is, this is just one. Over 2,000 children in several villages in Burkina Faso heard the gospel around Christmas time and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a really great deal? Can we just celebrate that? 2,000 kids. Now, let me tell you something that's even cooler. Uh, they were able to hear the gospel because of you. Because of your faithful giving to our church on a regular basis, we were able to send some money uh, to our partners there in Burkina Faso, to Pastor Henry, who is basically, he was on campus earlier this morning, uh, and uh, to support him, to provide the gifts so that he could draw the kids together. He said, these will be our future leaders of the churches in Burkina Faso. And it's because of your faithful giving that they have heard the gospel. So just remember, whenever I give, man, it's all for the cause of the kingdom. And when you give, you, you have no idea. Sometimes those gifts will reach across the world to another place where the gospel can be made known. So let's just celebrate that one more time. All right. Thank you so much for your faithful, faithful giving. Um, all right. I want you to take your Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is where we're going to land today. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you something about me you may not know. Uh, I actually started college as a music major, okay? I know it's shocking, isn't it? Uh, a music major. Uh, I had kind of this little country rock band when I was in high school. And I had a little long hair. I know you can't envision that now, but a little long hair. And I just liked jamming out. I knew about five chords on the guitar and about five chords on the keyboard. You can play 90% of country music just, just with those five chords. And so I, I thought, how cool would it be to go to college and you just jam out all the time? You just jam one jam session after next. How cool would that be? So I, I enrolled in the music department at Texas Tech. And I suddenly realized that people there are actually serious about music. You know, like, like they practice all the time and they, and things like music theory and all that, they, they, they study this stuff. I'm like, what, what is this? And I knew I was really in trouble when my first music class was a vocal class where I was actually paired up with a vocal teacher and I had a whole semester where she was going to teach me how to sing. And I thought, well, I already know how to sing. So this ought to be pretty easy. But this teacher, you have to picture her. She was a very flamboyant uh, vocal teacher. She had scarves you know, over her shoulders. And she was, you know, she was just a very flamboyant lady. You go into her little studio at the university, and she had pictures of her with all these famous vocalists from, you know, all over the place. And uh, here she was stuck with me for a whole semester <laughs> to teach me how to sing. So I worked really hard. I mean, I, I worked sort of hard. All right, not really hard, sort of hard. And uh, I got through my songs. Now, the way that you end your class, is that you have to sing before what they call a music jury. And that is a panel of about three or four 
uh, music teachers and you sing your song and they grade you and that's how you get a grade for the class. So before there was American Idol, there were music juries, okay? And uh, so I'm standing before now, the music jury, it's a very intimidating thing, and I'm singing songs in Italian and German and some crazy thing like that. And I did the best I could. I mean, it wasn't beautiful, it wasn't wonderful, but it was the best I had to offer. And uh, immediately after I finished the last note of the last song, my vocal teacher stood up and began to apologize to the panel for how bad I was. <laughs> That's not a, not a lie. She really did. She was like, well, you know, he's, he's had a cold and he's got some allergies. And, and we did cover that part, even though we didn't do that very well. I mean, she just like totally saying, it's not my fault that he's so bad. <laughs> and, and listen, I knew at that moment I had no business being in the music school, all right? I promptly withdrew from the music school and went to the business school because that's where everybody goes when they don't know what to do. And uh, that's what I did. I went to the business school. But, but you know, in the moment, she was speaking truth. Yes, she was, it was all truthful, but it, man, it was kind of hard to take. It was kind of abrasive right there in front of everybody. And I just felt kind of judged. You know, I felt like she was kind of talking down to me in front of them. And just, it was a weird feeling. I'm still trying to get over that. Y'all pray for me. I'm just trying to cleanse my heart. But you know, nobody likes to feel judged, right? Nobody likes to be looked down on. Nobody likes to be called out. Nobody likes to feel judged. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in our final installment of our series, Bad Advice. And I want to tackle this topic about judging. You know, a lot of times you will hear people say, hey, don't judge me, or that's not your place to judge. Or, or other people will say, you're so judgmental. And, and quite frankly, Christians get a bad rap about being judgmental all the time. And I hear that. And, and you, maybe you were not a follower of Jesus and you felt like Christians were judging you by what you wore, or how you looked, what music you listened to or, or whatever. Um, why is it that Christians struggle with this issue of judging and what should we do and what should we not do? What does the Bible say about it? Um, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's why we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to the Corinthian church, is talking about judging, okay? So let's, let's just pick it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. By the way, we're kind of starting in the middle of a conversation, so it's going to be a little rough, choppy start. But just kind of stay with me, and I'll kind of unfold uh, the context of it so that you can understand uh, the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. This is the Word of God. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or, and swindler or idolater since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside, purges the evil person from among you. Now, I want you just to take a minute and look at uh, verse 12 and 13, and I want you to circle the word judge. It actually appears three times in those two verses. The word judge there, you can write in the margin of your Bible, is the word krino, 
K-I-R-N-O, which, which means to separate or to distinguish or to make a decision or to make a judgment call. It's like, okay, I'm going to separate what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to make a judgment call here. That's, that's the idea of that word to judge, to make a distinction between right and what is wrong. Now, listen, we make judgment calls all the time. When you're in, your, in a business, you make a judgment call. Is that a right, a way to handle those resources? Should I deal with, shut down that department or whatnot? You make judgment calls there. If you're a judge, you make judgment calls with regard to the law. If you are a referee, you throw the flag and you make judgment calls on plays as you see them. Saints fans are still upset because they're not playing tonight because of a lack of a judgment call, all right? We, we, we do that, but Paul is talking here about dealing with people that are making bad choices that are going to hurt them and hurt other people. And he said, sometimes you have to throw the flag. Sometimes you have to make a judgment call. Somebody has to say, you know what, that's, that's not right. That's not good. That's, sometimes you have to, listen, you have to confront people because you care about them and you love them and you see the direction they're going is going to only be hurtful to them. And so you have to confront a situation. You have to have a hard conversation. That's what he's talking about. In fact, if you could just uh, summarize this passage, I would summarize it this way. You, if you care, you will confront. If you care, if you care about that person, if you care about their future, if you care about the people around them, if you care about the church, if you care about the reputation of Christ, then you will confront. You'll have hard uh, conversations with people in certain uh, situations. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. He's having a hard conversation with somebody in the church because they're taking a wayward road. Now, what I want to do in this message is really kind of unpack that for a minute and really dig into this issue of judging or confronting another person, right? First, I want to add, answer the question, who should I confront and who not? Who should I not confront? Secondly, why is this so important for me to confront? And then lastly, how would I do it? Or what, what is the right way to have conversations like this, all right? So let's tackle the first one, who, who should I confront? Paul is writing this letter of the, to the Corinthian church. Corinth was a very sex-saturated culture. Uh, in fact, I was reading this week about Portland, Oregon, and that in Portland, sometimes people call it porn land instead of Portland because of the immorality that's there. And, you know, the history of Portland, it was, act, you know, a port city, and many merchant ships would come through, a military would come through, and when they landed in Portland, it was port and party, all right? And so they were just kind of known for the place where everything just kind of, everything goes. It was kind of a wild place. You could drink and party, and there was all kinds of prostitution and things like that happening in Portland. And still today, there's a lot of sex trafficking that happens in that city. Well, Corinth was just like that. It was a port city. It was known for immorality. It was sin city. When you ported there, man, anything goes. Whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was that kind of a place. It, was, it had a, a terrible reputation. And so the Apostle Paul goes to Corinth to this dark, crazy place, and he starts preaching Jesus. 
In the middle of the darkness, he preaches about Christ. And there are people that get saved. And, and so they form this church. And so the people in the church are coming out of that kind of life. They're coming out of the life of crazy. They're coming out of the life of immorality and drunkenness and whatever, anything goes. And now they're trying to follow Jesus in that context. They're trying to figure out how do I live for Christ in an environment like this, okay? That's what he's dealing with. And so in the context of that church... Paul is dealing with a problem. There was a man in the church who called himself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and yet he was in a physical, immoral relationship with his father's wife. Now, we don't know the details. Could have been uh, probably not his mom, probably his stepmother, or maybe his father's widow. We don't exactly know. But what we do know, Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, that this situation was so egregious, it was so uh, dark that even people outside the church, even the pagan folks that are like going crazy, they're like, man, that's messed up. That is, that is wrong in every level. That is so bad. And he's like, and so in the church, this is happening. And the people in the church are kind of patting themselves on the back. They're, they're saying, we're so tolerant. We're so open-minded. We are so, uh, we're so grace-filled, right? And, and so they, they think that this is a good thing. And yet they're, yet they're allowing this sinful action to continue without a confrontation. And so Paul is instructing them to do something about it. And look again at verse 12. That's why we started there. In verse 12, he said, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you should judge? And the answer to that question is yes. Yeah, we, we, we should deal with those inside God's family. You know, we, we should care enough to confront those inside the family not rush to judge those outside the family. You know, when our girls were little, we, uh, uh, we lived in this cul-de-sac. And, uh, you know, our girls were young, and we, so we'd teach them. We told them, you know, you, you tell truth. You don't lie to people. You're respectful to adults. You, you know, you, you're, 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 there's certain ways we behave in our home. And they understood that. But not everybody, not every family in our cul-de-sac held to the same code. All right? And particularly, there was one little guy named Carter. Carter lived in our cul-de-sac. Carter was about, I don't know, five, six years old, maybe. A cotton top, cute little guy, looked like Dennis the Menace, all right? But Carter was a handful, all right? Carter was a trip. Uh, Carter would say things, you're like, did that just come out of your mouth, all right? He would lie to you straight up, all right? Dad said I could do that. Dad did not say that. I mean, he would straight up lie to you. Sometimes he would say some things like, whoa, you shouldn't be using those words, Carter. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. One time I pulled into the cul-de-sac, Carter is sitting on top of his roof. I, I don't know how he got up there. He's just chilling up on top of his house. I'm like, Carter, what are you doing? You know, now I don't go over to their house, knock on the door and say, hey, you know, I need to give you some tips on parenting. You obviously need some help. Your son should do this and do this and do that. I don't do that. Why? Because that's their family. They have their own things going on. I've got my hands full with my family and I've got to deal with my own. And that's really what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, there are times when you give your life to Christ, you are born again into God's family and God has expectations for how his kids should act, how we should talk to one another, how we should treat one another, how we should live. And there are times when we are in the family and yet one of us begins to veer off into dangerous territory, into things and decisions and sin that will only hurt and harm them. That's when you have to say, hey man, you know, I, I just need to talk to you about this. I love you and I care about you. I care enough to confront you in this situation because I want God's best. Listen, you're so much better than this. 
Now, let's sit down and talk about what you're doing with your life because I care and I love you. And Paul said there are going to be times when we're going to need to do that. That's what Christian brothers and sisters do. In 1983, there was a... Uh, a and the ad council put out an ad advertisement to try to curb drunk driving. And it was so effective. In fact, probably all these years later, you can probably still remember this ad. In fact, let me see if you can finish the phrase. Here was what the ad said. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Yeah, friends don't let friends drive drunk. You remember that? Friends don't let friends drive drunk. And what's interesting is 63% of Americans surveyed after the release of that ad, 63% said because of that ad, they intentionally intervened with a friend to keep them from driving drunk. Because what was drilled in their head is if you're really a friend, if you really care about them, you will intervene. Yeah, it's going to be a hard conversation. They're not going to like that. They're not going to want to hear that. But because you love them, you're going to intervene to save their life. That's really what Paul is saying here. Christians don't let Christians wreck their life. Christians don't let Christians just go off the rails and you don't do anything about it. You're going to have to intervene. And yeah, that may be a little dicey and it may be a little hard to have that conversation, but you do it out of love for them because you care. If you care, you will confront. If you care about them, you will confront. Now, you know, I've seen this many times. I remember one time when... um, I had a good friend, his name was Chris, and Chris was a great guy. He still is a great guy. And uh, Chris and I would go running together, and we, we would run in a couple of races together, and we just it really enjoyed each other's company, and just he and his wife were in our church. It was such a great, great couple, and still is a good friend. And one day, I got a call from his wife, and she was crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I think Chris is having an affair. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She said, well, I've seen his phone. I've just, I just got this feeling and I just think something bad is happening. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I called him. He didn't answer. I called. He didn't answer. I called again. He didn't answer. Didn't answer. Didn't answer. So I just got in the car and I just drove over to his office. I knew where he worked. So I just drove over to his office. I walked in the door, shut the door behind me, sat down at the chair right across from his desk. He's on the phone. And I just looked at him. Now, how would you like the preacher to come to your office and just sit there and look at you, you know? <laughs> you probably don't want that. And he didn't want that either. And so he got off the phone. And I said, man, we need to talk. And he goes, yeah, we do. I said, let's, let's get in there. I mean, he knew why I was there. So we, we, uh, we got in the car and we drove for two or three hours. And I mean, he just cried and he, was, he just confessed. He goes, Craig, I, I haven't done anything wrong, but I, yeah, there's probably some emotion with this person, but I, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get out of the situation. I, and he just, you know, he was angry and he was sad and he was just ran every gamut of emotions and we just stayed together. I said, man, we're going to be in this together. We're going to figure this out. Good news is that over the course of time, he and his wife just uh, really were able to heal from that and really began to grow strong. They're still today. They have great relationship. They're plugged into their church. They're serving God. They're walking with God. But listen, I confronted him because I care about him. I love him. He's my Christian brother. Why would I not have that conversation, even risk our relationship to help him? See, that's what Paul is talking about here. And listen, there are, there are two big mistakes Christians make with regard to judging or having conversations like this. And I want to point these out. The first mistake is this, that many times we are quick to judge those outside the family of God and expect them to live or behave as if they're in the family of God. We are quick to point out 
uh, people that do not know Christ and, and, and quick to point out all the false when they don't know Jesus and they're not trying to live for Christ. All right. Now, listen, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you shouldn't say something is right and wrong. I'm not saying that in our culture, we should not make moral stands. I mean, heaven's sakes, you know, this week there's stuff that's happened uh, and legislation put out that we need to stand firmly and say that is wrong. Okay. So there is a place for that. But what I'm saying is this, there is not our place to sit around and judge and condemn other people that do not know Jesus, aren't trying to walk with Jesus and, and put them down and look on them. In a, su- in a superior way because they simply don't know Christ and they're living as people that don't know Christ. Um, and listen, if you're here today and you say, you know what, I felt really judged by Christians. I'm not a Christian and they just constantly, you know, judging me all the time. Listen, I, I, I'm sorry for that. What we need to do and what we want to do with you is we want to love you. We want to care for you. We want to be a true friend to you. And we want to share with you the gospel the hope of Jesus Christ that has changed our life. Because listen, we were sitting right where you were. We've been right where you've been. And we've had confusion. We've, we, we've, we've been wayward. And we know exactly what that's like. And it, we know that the only good change in our life has been the change that Jesus has brought. And so we need to be sharing love and reflecting the gospel to people that do not know Christ, not judgment. But on the other hand, we make a second big mistake. And that is we're very slow to confront our brothers and sisters when they are um, wayward or when they're in, engaged in, in sin that's gonna destroy their life. We're very slow to that. We're quick to turn the other way. We're quick to excuse it. You know, just this week, the uh, Dallas Diocese released a list of priests that they believe, I have credible evidence that they offended children. And man, that's just shocking, right? I mean, you saw that, I saw that. It's a shocking thing. It's a horrible thing. And we can look at that and say, man, that's so terrible, you know, how that hasn't been brought to light over all these years and how, ter- how could they look the other way? And you know what, that is terrible, but we do the same thing. You know, we will, we will look past certain sin issues and we'll say, well, you know, it's not my place to judge or it's not my place to say. And, And we have allowed the moral temperature of the church to sink so low that we're not calling anybody out on anything. And so therefore, all of a sudden, there's no distinguishable difference between a person that says they love Jesus and someone that doesn't because everybody's doing the same thing. And we'll say, well, Craig, wait, time out now. You're getting too hard. I mean, you know, these young people these days, that's what they do before they get married. And, you know, these kids, they say, you know, you just got to let them be them. And it's not really my place to get involved in him and his drinking situation or or her in, in the way that she flirts around at the work. That's not really my place to get involved. I'm saying time out. It is. If you love them, if you care for them and you care where that's going to take them, you will confront that situation. Not in a harsh way, not in a condemning way, but in a way that says, I love you and I care about you and I don't want you to go down that road. And because we have failed to do that, I believe many cases the church has lost credibility in the eyes of the world because they say, man, you're so quick to point the finger at me and you're not dealing with your own house. And that's true. We have not dealt with our own house. And we need it. There is a space in the Christian walk for accountability. There is a space for loving confrontation. There's a space for us to have hard conversations because we want to spur one another on to love and godliness. That's what we're called to do as a church family. We're in the family. And that's part of being in the family. So why is this so important? That's who we're to confront, really our brother and sister. That's who we're to confront. 
Why is this so important? Well, Paul tells us, look back up at verse 6, and I'll show you why. He really points out to the why. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. He's talking to the church. You're you're bragging about not dealing with this issue. This is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You say, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? You know, what is, so let me explain to you. Paul is telling them why it's important to have these conversations. And he's going back to a tradition uh, of a Jewish festival called the Passover. Every year, Jewish people celebrate the Passover. And part of the Passover is that they will make bread with no leaven in it. You know what leaven is, right? It's that, it's that agent that allows the bread to rise. Liz makes these awesome rolls. She made them last night. So thankful. Praise God. <laughs> A gift from heaven. And it's really cool because she'll, I'll see her do it. She'll get this little pan thing out. It's got the little spots in there. And she'll drop this little bit of dough in there. And she'll put this little kind of covering over it. And she'll put it underneath this light. And throughout the whole day, that, that thing starts to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. And then finally, when it gets to the right spot, she puts it in the oven. And then it comes out. Woo, it smells good. She puts a little good stuff on top. Man, I'm getting hungry right now. And, 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 and it's that leaven in there. It's that yeast in there that causes the dough to rise. Now, what they were saying is we don't want any leaven in our bread at Passover. Why? Because leaven was a picture of, an illustration of sin. And so we said, listen, we don't, we, we want to get sin out of our life. So they made bread without. In fact, not only did they not make bread with yeast or with leaven, but they would sweep out the whole house. They would say, man, let's get rid of all. Let's clean out the cupboards. Let's sweep the floors. Let's get anything, any element of sin out of our life. It was a picture of confession. And he said, listen, we need to get all that out. We clean ourselves so we can celebrate the Passover. Now, what Paul is saying is this. Christ is our Passover lamb. Jesus came and he once and for all paid the price for our sin. And so it's Passover every day. It's Passover because of what Christ has done. And, and because if, if you swept out your house to celebrate just that one festival, we need to be constantly sweeping out our hearts before God and living a godly life. Listen, just as a little bit of leaven causes a whole dough to rise, a little bit of sin can cause the whole church to fall. And he said, you just can't overlook this. This has a bigger impact than you realize. That's why we say around here, oftentimes I've said it, you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. What I mean by that is if you choose to sin willfully, say, man, I know God says this, I'm doing this anyway. This is just what I think. This is what I want to do. Then then listen, you're setting yourself on a path that things are going to be very hard for you. And you're going to pay a heavier price than you know. It's not just going to hurt you. It's going to hurt the people around you. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to cause grief to the church. It's going to cause the reputation of Christ to be diminished. So listen, we, we need to help each other by having these conversations and to confront. If we care, then we will confront. We'll confront our brother and sister in Christ. And, and, and we will do it because it's, we don't want to see them hurt and wounded. Just a little bit of sin can cause a tremendous impact. And so the last uh, question is then how do you do that? How do you do that? And actually, I don't have time. 
uh, to really go through all of it. If you're on the Bible app, our, our first Colville app, you can see the notes there. And I've got several things listed. I don't have time to get to all of them. But let me just give um, one thing. Uh, how should I do it? Well, you should do it in love. You should confront in love. Look at Galatians 6 verse 1. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. He said, if you see a brother or sister in Christ and they're going the wrong direction, man, I'm just really concerned about that relationship. I'm concerned about what they're doing there. I'm concerned about how that guy is dealing with the situation at home. I'm concerned about that thing. I, I love them. I don't want them to go in the wrong direction. He said, if you who are godly, you who are mature, you need to approach them. But how do you do it? Humbly and gently. It just humbly. That means don't think that you're, you've got it all figured out. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, listen, uh, uh, judge not lest you be judged. For the same measure you judge others, it will be measured to you. And he said, uh, do you want to uh, try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a log in your own eye? <laughs> he said, first get the log out of your eye, then you can deal with the speck. And Jesus is not saying don't deal with the speck. He's just saying deal with the log first. And so when I begin to deal with another person and I'm like, I love you, man, and I just care about you and I'm concerned about this area of your life, you start off by looking in the mirror. And say, so, okay, God, is there any area in me that's not right? Is there anything in my life that would skew my perspective? Is there any area of sin in my life, any leaven of sin that I need to sweep out? So we start humility with humility. I, hum I approach them humbly. It's like, man, I don't have all my act together. And I know I, I've got, I need grace just like you need grace. But because I love you, I'm really concerned about this area in your life. And he said, humbly and gently. You do it gently. You do it in love. It's not like I got you, man, I'm going to come down on you now. No, it's like, hey, let, let me help you. Let me roll up my sleeves and get in this with you. And let me help you get out of this situation. We're in this together. We're brothers in Christ. Let's try to, let's try to work this out together. The end goal of it is always restoration. It's always restoration. And we need more restoration, don't we? We need more restoration in our marriages, more restoration in our churches, more restoration in our families. And that's the end goal. If you care, you'll confront. That's really what Jesus did when he came to earth, when he went to the cross, he was confronting our sin. But he cared enough to give his life to redeem us. When Jesus came, he did not come to condemn and he did not come to excuse. He came to restore. He came to redeem. He came to reconcile us back to God.